0: Heavenly Father, i thankful that you have given us the word this, this evening, a word that is focused on a time and a place in which the church was engaged in persecution and was under threat. And Father, I thank you that you have preserved this for us because persecution has always been and always will be a part of the church at times and in places. And um, Father, the things that were happening in the church in that day are things that will happen any time that we find ourselves under that kind of pressure. And so, Father, even as we may be sitting today in a place and in a time when uh, we are not pressured and when we feel complete freedom to express our faith, Father, don't let us feel complacent and don't let us take that for granted. But use this time, Father, we pray by your word, to prepare us and strengthening us so that... Even if we might never see it, Father, we would be in a position to train others who will, who will and pray for those who do. And, Father, we thank you as well that you've kept a faithful opportunity for this teaching to happen, this room, this place, this audience. Uh, Father, I thank you that my strength has been available to do it as well and that you have um, blessed us all with that and that you would continue to do that as well. Until the day is the day, Father, that we see you face to face. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Returning to our study of 2 Timothy. And in the opening of this letter last time, Paul was imploring Timothy to stand firm in his faith and in his appointed role as a leader of the church in Ephesus. And as we noted last time, this call to Timothy was coming because the church in Ephesus was in the midst of Roman persecution under Nero. The church leadership was feeling pressure to shrink back from public ministry, public proclamations of the gospel, were now carrying a serious price for anyone who dared stand up and say what they believed. And any association with men like Paul who were leading in the church was also cause automatically for suspicion. Now Paul obviously worried that his timid protege, Timothy was going to follow suit with the pattern of walking away from the faith that was evident in Ephesus and in Asia generally. And Paul told Timothy last time, you didn't receive a spirit of timidity or fear, but rather a spirit of courage and power and self-discipline. And with those things, Paul expected Timothy to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. So if Timothy could do that, if he could walk by the Spirit, well then he would have what it took to stand up to his fears and his worries and complete the mission. And Paul said that's Christ's calling for every servant. For just as Christ faced persecutions for telling the truth, so must his servants be prepared to endure the same. And therefore, Paul commanded Timothy, don't be ashamed, look at this in verse 8, don't be ashamed of Christ's testimony, nor Paul's own ministry as a, quote, prisoner of Christ. You should find it interesting that Paul chose to use the term ashamed. In verse 8 he said don't be ashamed of me don't be ashamed of the gospel I doubt if you had asked Timothy back in this day to describe his instinct to hide from persecution I doubt he would have described that instinct as being ashamed of Christ how do you think he might have expressed it I think he might have said that well I was certainly worried For my life, I was fearful for the consequences, but I wasn't ashamed of Christ. It was simply a matter of self-preservation. But Scripture, Paul's words, testify that when we put our own needs above glorifying the name of Christ, we have effectively declared we are ashamed of his mission and of his purpose. Because it means we're rejecting his very premise. We're rejecting his claims. The gospel claims, it declares that the world is spiritually dead and therefore under judgment. It declares that the true life, the life we really want to preserve and keep is only found in Christ. And it declares that therefore nothing in this world is worth trading for eternity. That's what your gospel message is saying to a world that needs to know that. So when you consciously choose to silence that message so as to preserve your earthly life, Well, then you're communicating something opposite to the testimony that you hold. You're declaring by your choice that the world's judgment of you is more convicting than the Lord's judgment of you. And you're declaring that the life you possess in this world must be preserved at all costs, even at the cost of silencing the message of eternal life in Christ. And you're declaring that this world is more precious to you than the one you stand to receive in Christ. In that sense, if we demonstrate that we would rather see our life here preserved and our silence maintained over taking the risk of a testimony, we're saying we're ashamed of Christ. We're ashamed of what we've been given. We're ashamed of what he stood for. If you distance yourself from others who serve faithfully, like distancing yourself from Paul, for example, well, then you're communicating disapproval with his faithfulness to that same message. We're saying we're ashamed of what Christ said because we don't want to repeat it. And we're ashamed of anyone who does repeat it because they're aligning themselves with Christ. At the moment persecution arrives, few believers have the presence of mind to recognize the implications of shrinking back, which is why Scripture says we are to give careful thought to what we will do under those circumstances before we ever face them, before we ever think we might face them, while we still live in a country and in a time when the thought of such things seems so remote so as to be a near impossibility. As we return to Paul's letter, we're going to move directly to that question. The question being, what do we do while we wait for persecution so that we might be prepared to face persecution in a faithful way? Specifically, what is it that will hold you and me to the mission when the world threatens to take everything away from us unless we repudiate that mission? In human terms, what answer do you give to the missionary who is entering a dangerous place? Or how do you justify the loss of a father or a husband or a mother or a wife to persecution to the family that's now suffering with that loss? Or how do you stand firm in your message and in your mission when powerful people threaten to take your very life or those who you love unless you change your course? How do you prepare for that? Intellectually, I think we all may agree that Christ is greater than anything we have in this world, and that we would all say to ourselves, I'll never be one who would be ashamed of him or his testimony. And while we might think that, if intellectual agreement with those things were enough all by themselves to hold us to the mission, then how do you explain Peter's denial of Christ? How do we know for certain that we will do better than Peter, who famously declared mere moments beforehand that he would never abandon Jesus? Clearly, good intentions may not be enough in the face of threats of death. We may never face that choice. Perhaps we never will. Thank the Lord, should we never have to face it? But the early church faced martyrdom daily. And in many places today, Christians still face it. And in the coming years, the Bible says the church will face it more and more. So what do you say to those who might waver? Well, here's what Paul says. Kept him going. Verse 12. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Paul says, for this reason, I also suffer these things, rather than living in shame of Christ. And what follows is Paul's anchor, that is, his shield against his own fears and doubts as he would serve under threat of persecution. I think he's actually the perfect test case, isn't he? Of all those you might think of in the history of the church, who better to model yourself on than the man who probably faced more consistent persecution than anyone did under similar circumstances. There was hardly a day, I'm sure, Paul did not feel some threat. And Paul says, this anchor or this shield that he had was something that he knew... Which gave him confidence in the face of suffering And I want you to notice before we even look at the solution itself Notice that the solution to remaining faithful to christ in times of trial It was found in spiritual knowledge The church today has become absorbed in experience We crave excitement We crave stimulation in our walk with christ And everything spiritual is judged according to that standard As I travel, I'll ask people, what's your church like? What's this church like? Or maybe a friend of mine will say they just visited a church in my local area. And I'll say, oh, really, what was that church like? And quite often, the evaluations I'll get in response to that question will center generally on details like the quality of the music or the cleverness of the pastor's jokes or illustrations or the novelty of his stunts on stage, or the videos that he might use to supplement his sermon, or the props he might drag up in front of the crowd, or even on things like the length of the service itself. Did they take too much of my time? Or on the comfort of the stadium seating. Rarely, though, will you hear comments on the theology of their statement of faith, or the pastor's biblical knowledge, or the godliness of the congregation which ultimately should be the true measures of whether or not this is a place that suits the Lord. And therefore, it should be no surprise that many believers today prioritize experience over Scripture when evaluating spiritual truth. When personal experience defines our understanding of Christ, then our relationship will be one-sided and self-serving. Moreover, it will be ever-changing, because contrary experiences will compete in our mind, as we seek to understand what is truth, God is good when He heals someone we love, but what happens when He doesn't heal? What is that saying to us? Hell is real for you when you thank the Lord for His saving grace, but will hell still be real for you after your unbelieving parent dies without faith? Our experiences, friends, lie, because at best they are incomplete, and at worst they are reflections of our preferences and our moods you can spot a christian who defines spiritual truth through experience because their past experiences will trump any teaching from the bible that is contrary to their preference questions about god's blessings and gifts or about angels or spirit or hell or heaven all of those issues will be decided for them on the basis of their personal experiences and any teaching to the contrary is dismissed out of hand since no one can tell me what I experienced. In that sense, truth becomes relative since different believers possess different experiences which means that experience-based learning is highly subjective, easily manipulated to suit our personal notions, our preconceived ideas. We embrace some truths, we reject others on the basis of how they make us feel, and there is no objective standard, so we're free to do that all day long. That's the effect of trying to discern spiritual truth merely by what hits us, by what suits us, by what we like. And many of the popular heresies that are plaguing the church today have gained a foothold because immature believers have bought into an experience-based truth model. For this crowd, the more powerful and dynamic the speaker, or the more wealthy and successful the church is, or their pastor is, or the more engaging and entertaining the church service is, well then, the more real it is, and therefore the more truth it holds. And of course, conversely, small, boring, poorly funded, Bible-teaching churches... They're clearly on the way out. They have nothing to offer. Who wants to sit in front of a guy like me, droning on for 45 minutes about the Bible? There's no fun in that. And therefore, there can be no truth in it. And of course, you would find that humorous because you're here. You clearly aren't the average. But friends, how many people in how many places today would find any interest in what you're listening to today? And I don't say that in some kind of false modesty. I'm saying that as a litmus test of sorts, as a barometer of where we go to find truth today. If we were to turn off all the jumbo screens and silence the driving rock beat and clear the smoke machines off the stage, what would we find enduring in these places? If our understanding of spiritual truth is based in our experiences rather than in an abiding study of Scripture, we are standing on quicksand. The foundations of our faith are moving under our feet we hold something to be true only until something better comes along a more convincing teacher a more compelling presentation the hot new church with the brand new building whatever might come along will cause us to change our views change our practice change our dedication so in that sense people who are experienced focused in their seeking of spiritual truth will be tossed back and forth by waves of church fads that come and go. They'll snap up the next best-selling book by that smiling Christian pastor or they will set their DVR to record that popular Christian miniseries that everybody's talking about on TV because they're hoping that some of these things will hold the secret to revolutionizing their walk with Christ. A church body that stands on that kind of quicksand of experience is not standing on the firm foundation of God's Word and they'll be blown over in life's trials now in times of ease which I think is a fair characterization of the church in the West right now for now in times of ease a church built on experiential truth will be superficial vain and beset by sin and it will only serve itself and it will remain forever vulnerable to the temptations of its flesh and to the enemy's schemes not a good story certainly but in times of persecution. The stakes increase considerably. Believers who rely on experiential truth are entirely unprepared to face existential tests. How will they respond to demands like renounce Christ or die? If your theology is little more than God wants me to be happy, then how can you justify martyrdom? Certainly that was the concern for the church in Ephesus. A life of ease and wealth had not prepared them for Nero's purging of the church. And now that being Christian involved real risks, well, what was true anymore? Was faith in Christ worth dying for? What experience could justify watching loved ones fed to lions or going to the stake yourself? Only by abiding in His Word would somebody be willing to stand faithfully under those circumstances. Because the Bible says the Word of God is food for our soul. It's a light to our path. It's truth. It's the only truth and therefore believers only grow and they're only spiritually strengthened through an abiding study of God's word. That's the central truth that Jesus taught in John 15 in the vine analogy. He says in John 15:1, I am the true vine and the father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Like the analogy of a branch on a vine, you and I draw our spiritual supply from Christ. To strengthen us for greater production, the Lord may prune us at times, testing us, bringing us through hardships of one kind or another. If we respond to that pruning in the proper fashion, we produce even more fruit. But if we disconnect ourselves from the supply, we have no hope to sustain our walk in the face of such trial. And experiences with God, however genuine, however dramatic, do not equal, much less replace, an abiding knowledge of God through His Word. When Paul says, back to the text, when Paul says, he knew in whom he believed, he's saying he knew where his supply came from. He knew the master who pruned him. And that knowledge from God's word sustained him in suffering. Regardless of what kind of persecutions we may face in life, our ability to sustain our faithful walk depends upon our devotion to the word of God. As the psalmist says in Psalm 119, 33 he says teach me o lord the way of your statutes and I shall observe it to the end Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart Make me walk in the path of your commandments for I delight in it And then skip to verse 49 he says remember the word to your servant in which you have made me hope This is my comfort in my affliction that your word has revived me Now to be sure god uses experiences From time to time. I mean, miracles have a place in God's economy. But generally speaking, when God uses miracles, He does it to gain someone's attention so that then they will hear the Word of God. And if you doubt me in that, go back and look at what you see in Scripture whenever miracles play a prominent role in God's work. For example, Moses. Moses used miracles to gain Pharaoh's attention so that then Pharaoh would listen to his Word concerning Israel. Jesus used miracles all the time, but He did that to gain an audience for the Gospel so that he could declare that the kingdom had arrived. And even in the church in Acts, you see the Spirit working to produce miraculous signs from time to time, but always as a means of calling attention to the voice of the apostles as they preach the message. Which brings us back again to verse 12. Paul says he was willing to suffer for the gospel because of two things he knew from the Word of God. First, he says, in whom he had believed. He knew in whom he had believed. We all know he's speaking here of Christ. That is, Paul knew Christ. But obviously, Paul knew Christ in the simple sense that Paul was a believer in Jesus Christ. And in that way, we could say every believer knows Jesus Christ by definition. And that's important, but that's not what he's talking about. Paul's speaking about the knowing that goes far beyond obtaining a saving knowledge of Christ. It means knowing Christ intimately from the word of God itself. We could talk for hours, I'm sure, on all that Paul came to know of Christ, but... I want to focus on three aspects that probably directly support Paul's reasoning for why he's willing to suffer. First, knowing Christ's character. If you study God's word, and I don't just mean the gospels or the letters, I'm talking the whole of it. In a fairly short period of time, you'll gain a good appreciation for the character of God. And Paul knew Christ's character from the word. He knew him to be merciful and good and a rewarder of those who seek him. He knew him to be a God who keeps his promises from the start of all that God has done. And he knew that a passing of time has no effect on the faithfulness of God. Doesn't matter how long you're waiting for God to fulfill his promises, that fulfillment is no less secure now than it was when it was spoken originally. God will keep his promises. As Paul himself wrote in Romans, which I would think clearly reflects this perspective on from Paul on Christ, he said in Romans 8.38, For I am convinced that neither death nor life... Nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the character of God. He's a covenant-keeping God. Second thing Paul knew, he knew God had a good purpose in all that happens. He knew there was good purpose in what God was seeking to do by allowing His children to suffer for His namesake. Just as the Father determined that the Son would suffer at times to bring about our redemption, so may He ask us to suffer like Christ did. And He doesn't call us to suffer more than we can handle, and He doesn't call us to do more than Christ did on our behalf. And just like Christ, we can be glorified through our suffering. That is, after we're tested and found faithful, we may receive a reward that cannot perish. And then thirdly, I think Paul knew that Christ was a God of power. He knew the power of Christ from the Word. That is to say, nothing can stand against Christ. God's will be done, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So, when you see persecution coming upon you as a believer, and you understand that God is a God who is ultimately doing good for the sake of his children is a god who has purpose in all that happens and he's a god of power such that there is nothing happening that has not been ordained and permitted by god as a part of his plan well then you can face troubles in life with confidence you don't have to like them and you certainly don't have to seek after them necessarily you're free to escape them if there's an option to do so without compromising your witness but if there is no option except to face them you can do that knowing with peace that god is at work through them Paul had all of this from a knowledge of the Word of God. And with that knowledge, he was able to stand firm. He knew in whom he had believed. But now you might be sitting there saying to yourself, well, that's easy for Paul, though. Because Paul had some pretty remarkable experiences. I seem to remember Paul with some pretty dramatic experiences, given what we read in the book of Acts, for example. Paul's own testimony in 2 Corinthians is that he was taken up into heaven, the third heaven, he called it, which is a way of referencing the, the throne room of God. So clearly that had some impact on him, didn't it? Well, certainly he had unique experiences, which no one else in the church has probably equaled. But ironically, Paul's extraordinary encounters with Christ were necessary so that God could equip the apostle with spiritual understanding so that then Paul could supply the rest of the church that same understanding through his writing. So in other words, ultimately, even Paul's experiences were the word of God for us. It all traces back to the word of God. Those experiences were not done for some side purpose or some additional benefit for Paul. They were the means to the end of God's Word becoming known to the church. For Paul testified to what he experienced in Scripture. And so all of this comes back to the Word. So from the study of God's Word, Paul said he knew in whom he believed, and that knowledge gained him confidence to suffer for his namesake. And now look at the second half of verse 12. Paul then adds, that he was convinced Christ was able to guard what Paul had entrusted to Christ. Now, at first reading, that may sound backward. The temptation may be one to flip those pronouns in your mind. That is to say, it wasn't that Paul had entrusted something to Christ. Rather, we might have expected Paul to say he's convinced that he, Paul, could guard what Christ had entrusted to him. That is, Paul would guard like the message of the gospel or he would guard the church that he had been given to steward or something of that sort, right? But that's not what Paul said. For that's not what Paul is speaking about. Paul said he was willing to suffer for Christ because he knew Christ and he knew that Christ was guarding something for him. And of course, knowing Christ's character and his purpose and his power, Paul was all the more confident in Christ's guarding power. Well, what is Paul entrusting to Jesus that Jesus is guarding for Paul? Well, the answer has to be pretty special because it's guarded by no one less than Jesus. And it was enough incentive for Paul to be willing to suffer even to the death for the sake of the gospel. What is it that could be so valuable to Paul? Well the answer, of course, is Paul's eternal reward. The heavenly reward Paul knew he would receive for having served Christ faithfully to the end. For having suffered in this life for the sake of the gospel, Paul knew he was storing up eternal reward that Christ guarded in that sense, and no one could take away from him. And that was all the reason Paul needed to suffer for Christ. Paul was trusting that when all was said and done in his life, his sufferings, looking back on that suffering, his sufferings would have been well worth what he received as a result of faithfulness. Which is why Paul says, you really can't compare the two. In Romans 8.18, he says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I think he's speaking not only in the general sense that there is a glory to be found in the next life, but I think he's speaking in a personal sense as well, that his sufferings could be worth it because what they gain him is far greater than what he's losing. It's a good deal, in other words. This is one of the most important and profound truths of the New Testament. And sadly, one that many Christians walk their entire life without knowing about. A commitment to serve Christ as a faithful disciple holds opportunity for eternal rewards. Those rewards are reserved for us in the kingdom to come. You will only see them after you are resurrected. We're not talking about salvation itself, obviously. That's something by faith alone, not by a reward or a work as Paul said earlier in verse 9, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But what Paul then has gone on to say in the verses after verse 9 is that he was willing to suffer hardship, he was willing to accept the world's scorn, as he shared the message with others, because he was convinced Christ would make that sacrifice worth it in the end. That is to say, no matter what the world might do to Paul in retaliation for his obedience to Christ, Paul knew that he could trust the Lord to guard his eternal reward. Friends, concern yourself with pleasing Christ because one day the Bible says you all we all stand before Christ for a judgment, not a judgment that determines whether to go to heaven or not. That was already determined on the cross by faith. We have received that outcome already, but a judgment. Nonetheless, Paul describes it in Second Corinthians 510. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Paul says we have to be recompensed, or you could say repaid, for our service to Christ. And as we fulfill our calling, as we please the Lord, we'll seek a reward. But if our discipleship is found lacking, if our deeds in the body are, quote, bad, as Paul says well, then our rewards will suffer similarly. It's not that our life in the kingdom will suffer. It's not a suffering in the sense of punishment. It's a suffering in the sense of losing opportunity, losing what could have been. Now, this concept, the very bedrock on which Paul says he was willing to suffer for, this concept of reward, of suffer now for what God will provide later, that concept, friends, is only found in the Word of God. You cannot find that. You cannot even intimate it through experience. Everyday experience in the church will never teach you this truth. Absent the teaching of the Word of God, you'd never know it. And proof of that is how many Christians go to church every week completely oblivious to the fact that what they do now is having some impact on how Christ will reward them in the kingdom. That's a truth you only find from the counsel of the Word of God. And it's such a central truth that it's shocking that it's not a regular conversation. For it's such a great motivator. In fact, its whole purpose for being in the Word, its whole purpose for existing at all, is for the sake of encouraging that slave, as Jesus calls us in parables, to be faithful to the master while the master's gone. To know of eternal rewards, as the Bible teaches, is to be prepared to face the temptations of the world. Whether temptations of distraction, or dissipation, or temptations to give in to your fears of persecution. Either way, knowing that the Lord is at work testing our faithfulness, measuring our response... And preparing to reward us for faithfulness to his call, that gives us good cause to consider how we serve, does it not? But this is just one example of why faithful and consistent preaching of God's word is essential to the growth and the maturity of the church. Just as Paul now reiterates to Timothy in verse 13, he says, Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in you the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Reading between the lines here a little bit, it would seem once more that Timothy might be tempted to modify his preaching to avoid trouble. That seems to be what Paul's concerned about here. But Paul tells Timothy that persecution is all the more reason to preach the truth. Paul calls preaching the truth of God's Word the standard of sound words, which Timothy heard from Paul. That's how he describes it here. The Greek word for standard, it can also be translated pattern, as in like a pattern used to make a dress. And the sound words phrase there, that could be translated a healthy message or a safe message. So what he's saying to Timothy is there is one safe, healthy message, and Timothy should pattern his speaking After that message, which is the one that Paul delivered when he was there Paul spoke those words. He said in faith and in love in Christ That is he spoke out of love for Christ and he spoke for love of the church He delivered the truth in love And he spoke in faith that Christ would put his own word to great use. Remember, the word of God is God's word, not our word. And so as we speak it, it's not as though it's our word making things happen, whether that's in the heart of a believer or some other way. It's merely letting God's word do its work. We're, we're simply an observer of God's work in that respect. And so Paul is asking Timothy to do as he did. That is, to step into a situation that has grave risk and potentially blow back from those who don't appreciate the message and speak it with a confidence that it comes with God's ordained power and purpose, and you can let it free, let it do as God chooses to do, Timothy must do the same, which is a willingness to speak truth, no matter what might come of it. Doing so, he said, would ensure reward for Timothy, even as it makes opportunity for others to know the same truth. In fact, the sound words of the Word of God, Paul says, are a treasure entrusted to Timothy by Christ. I wonder personally what would happen in church pulpits around the world if more men thought of the Word of God in this way. That is, the Word of God is something God treasures. The Word says elsewhere, He treasures His own Word above all else. Psalm says in 138, Psalm 138, verse 2, I will bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth, for you have magnified your word above all your name. Now, we know how God holds His name in regard in Scripture, right? The name above all names, and a name is the embodiment of the person who holds it. It says all that needs to be said about a person's character, and that's why God's name is so varied in Scripture. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty This, Great This, Lord of This, Lord of That, right? All the ways God is named in Scripture are meant to show you the, the awesomeness of the character of God. And despite all of that, God holds His word above His own name. So all men called to minister to God's people in pastoral ministry have been entrusted with the Word of God, something that the Lord says is a treasure to him. So what do you suppose the Lord thinks as he observes pastors, maybe like Timothy in his day, neglecting or even changing the Word to suit their own purposes? Especially when you know the truth that leads men and women to abide in Christ is only found in the Word of God. So Paul calls Timothy to guard or to keep that treasure through the Holy Spirit, which is to say, Timothy, value this above anything else, above your personal safety, above your personal reputation or popularity, above the whims of your congregation, something I think many in my line of work have forgotten, that we hold the value of the Word of God above anything of our personal interest. How often and how sad it's been for me to hear men who say that they would preach more out of the word on Sundays were it not for the fact that in doing so they'd run too many people out of their building. May I submit to you that anyone who's not willing to be in the building so they can hear the word of God, the very thing they need is the word of God. The truth that Paul is giving Timothy here also has implications for you and I individually. I don't want this to be seen from too much of a distance to those of us as members of a church rather than as pastors. Knowing how highly the Lord values his word, even above his name, the believer then I think is on notice to treat the word of God as the treasure that it is. And that means first having a personal goal of seeking to understand the depths of God's word. You have to make a point of finding your supply daily in the word of God. And that's going to look a little different from person to person. But in general, it means endeavoring to study it in a comprehensive fashion, regularly, consistently, and to do so both as a matter of personal study, but also in seeking outside instruction. We're responsible for that pursuit. The writer of Hebrews says in speaking to the church of his day in Hebrews 5:12, that though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need again milk, not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. The writer's point, in general, is that no believer is exempt from the biblical injunction to know the Word of God. And not just superficially, but according to the writer, well enough to teach others regardless of whether you feel personally called to teach or not. It's a standard of knowledge, in other words, a standard of devotion to the pursuit of what's in the Bible. I'll sometimes on a point like this within a crowd, maybe as I'm traveling, I'll try to make my point by asking how many people in that crowd can name all 66 books of the Bible. In any order you please, just name them all. And, of course, most people hope that I don't call on them. (laughs) And then I say, well, how about just the New Testament? Of which I still find most people feel a bit hesitant to try. And then I ask the obvious question. If you can't even name them, how much do you know about what's in them? I find that once I've studied a book, I never forget that it's in the Bible or where it is. And my point is not that I know it all any more than... Anyone else? I'm saying it to simply illustrate that while we may feel somewhat satisfied in our study as a Bible student because we are engaged in it regularly, a sober look at who we are and what we really know will probably reveal that we're largely biblically ignorant, and certainly the average Christian is entirely biblically ignorant. And why is that a problem? Because there's some kind of contest of who knows the most? No. Because this is the manual for Christian living. It is the means by which we become the righteousness of God in practice, even as we are in position. And if we don't know it, we can't live it. And as the enemy or the world brings itself against us, whether for our faith or for any other reason, what are we standing on? As we confront those moments, as we prepare for them now in a moment of ease, what are we getting ready with? What is it that's preparing us? This is a high standard, yes. Few today seem very interested in meeting it, much less being able to meet it. Even among those Christians who engage in regular study of God's Word, many of them, ironically, pursue God's Word by seeking experiences rather than seeking true, in-depth Bible study. So you watch videos of people doing what is little more than a stand-up comedy routine, or you join discussion groups in which it's a pooling of ignorance and everybody asking each other what they think it means, rather than straightforward didactic instruction from a knowledgeable instructor. No matter what methodology or curriculum you seek, in the end, everyone is responsible to Christ for what you learn. Remember, we're called to know and abide in Christ by His Word. Then secondly, knowing how the Lord treasures His Word, we ought to think very carefully about what kind of church or organization we commit to or support. Because in days of waning understanding of and commitment to the Word of God, believers have to double down in our efforts on promoting proper biblical instruction. So if the church that you attend does not teach the Bible clearly and properly and routinely from the pulpit, why do you support it? If the church leadership doesn't value the treasure that God has entrusted to it, how useful are they going to be in helping you guard it? And with persecution right around the corner, I think the church needs to return to the confidence that Paul had that allowed him to face suffering, and that confidence came from knowing and guarding God's treasure, which among other things taught him that he had his own treasure at stake in his faithfulness. Not everybody in the body of Christ shares your love, my love and appreciation for the word of God. And so when difficult times come, and they will, many are going to face them by standing on quicksand rather than rock, just as was the case in Paul's day. And we see evidence in it as we look at the end of the first chapter. Verse 15. Paul says, you are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and are Hermogenes. Paul says all the church leadership in Asia turned away from him. I don't think he's exaggerating. I don't think it's hyperbole. All the leadership of the church in Asia, and Ephesus was a city within that province of Asia, so we're talking about the leaders that were in the city of Ephesus, apart from Timothy, and in any other areas surrounding Ephesus. Many of if not all of the church leaders, left. Many of the flock probably followed. They all repudiated Paul in one way or another. And they did so to save their freedom and their livelihood and the lives of their family in the face of Nero's persecution. And I would argue that based on Paul's teaching, they must have done it because they were not rooted in God's word. They didn't realize what they were sacrificing in the process. If we could go back in time and talk to some of these guys, whoever they were, And if we could have given them some magical way to look forward into their future and gaze upon their heavenly reward like they were contestants in Let's Make a Deal, for those of you over 50. What a great show that was, by the way. So Let's Make a Deal, right? And it's as if you could put them on the stage in that game show and you could ask them whether they wanted to trade their job or their freedom or even their earthly life for what was behind door number one. These Christians, according to Paul, were were readily saying yes to that deal, that they would give up whatever was behind that heavenly door in exchange for holding on to, temporarily, their earthly things. Clearly, that's a foolish bargain, and it's one they didn't need to make. If they had treasured the word of God, they would have had a better understanding of what lied behind that door, what was behind door number one, so to speak. They could have appreciated the magnitude and the permanency of that reward. In contrast to the fleeting, worthless quality of what they were trying to preserve here in this life, as Jim Elliot famously said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. These Christians in Asia were making the fool's trade. Now among the leaders were two that Paul mentions here by name. These men are not mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. We don't know anything else about them. But apparently, they were initially very helpful to Paul in Ephesus, but now have turned away merely because of persecution. These men, I assume, are believers. But forevermore, notice, forevermore, their names are immortalized in God's eternal, unchanging word for their misdeeds. Not the kind of testimony any of us want. Why does Paul mention them? Well, I'm going to give Paul the benefit of the doubt that he knew he was writing Scripture. And therefore, Paul seems to be mentioning these men to give Timothy cause to think again about his own actions. I mean, imagine seeing another man's name recorded in Scripture by an apostle and then wondering how your own history will be written. And yes, I do believe, as there is evidence from the early church fathers, that Paul's letters were immediately identified as Scripture from the moment they were authored. They were understood to be. And so as Timothy receives a letter from Paul, knowing the magnitude of what he's receiving, God's Word is in his hand, even as it talks about him taking care of the Word of God that's entrusted to him. And he sees the names of men like these two It seems Paul wanted to give Timothy extra motivation to do the right thing. Don't let me have to write about you to someone else. We can only hope it succeeded in Timothy's case. But then Paul finishes the chapter with one more man, singled out, but in an unusual way. Verse 16, The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. So Paul asked the Lord here to grant mercy to a man named Anisiphorus. And Paul says several good things about this man's testimony. Right? First, he says he was often refreshed by this man when he was ministering in Ephesus. That means this guy must have been someone who supported Paul in a variety of ways while he ministered in the region. And then secondly, he's not ashamed of Paul's chains. Now he's speaking here about a time when paul was in chains in rome he says the man sought him out in rome that's when paul was in house arrest you may remember and so clearly the man is a man of faith he's a man who's even got some courage about him but when we think about it for a minute paul was in chains in rome not because of general persecution but because of something specifically charged against him the jews had brought charges against him and that charge had resulted in an arrest and then paul appealed to caesar for a trial against those charges So in those days, a man like Vanessa could visit Paul without much concern. There really wasn't much courage involved in that way. Maybe a little bit. But now the days are quite different. Now all Christians are at risk, especially those who are associated with Paul. And as it would appear, again reading between the lines, it seems as though the man's faithfulness has waned of late. Paul doesn't say anything specifically. We don't hear the charge. But Paul implies the man has fallen like the rest in Asia because... He feels the need to appeal to the Lord on the man's behalf for mercy on this day, he says, on the day, which is a reference to the judgment day, to the day in which this man is judged, like we all will be. So it would appear that Paul's appeal for mercy suggests strongly this man was in need of some forgiveness concerning this same issue, which, if true, means that Paul felt sorry for this man in light of his previous diligence in serving, because he knew at the judgment seat there would be an accounting for this man. I think here again, Paul mentions this, knowing it's recorded in Scripture, to give Timothy added incentive. If you're motivated to faithful service to Christ by nothing more than your love for Christ, well, then you are to be commended, go forth and serve, and we admire you for it. But if you're like the rest of us, who appreciate a reminder now and again that God is a rewarder of those who seek Him, and needing strengthening once in a while, To remember that we will give an account before the Lord, then a reminder that there have been others who have gone before us and failed, even after having done many good things, but on the last day was still found lacking because they were not prepared to face the challenges, the tests that God was prepared to bring. Well, then let that be an incentive to us that we should not take for granted the place we have now, that our faith is secure and our heavenly home is secure but our reward is still in question as we seek to serve him, then if you want to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, maybe we ought to give some thought to what we're doing in the meantime. And the Lord brings us trial. He brings us persecution even at times so that we might have opportunity to maximize that reward. But it depends on whether we're prepared. The word of God is the rock on which we stand by seeking it in a regular way. In the day, we will meet that test successfully. That's the call of Scripture. Let's be in prayer that we won't face a test of that sort. But then again, the Bible says that to have that test is opportunity for glory. Perhaps your prayer ought to be less about failing to see it and more about successfully seeing it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we pray for those in the church who are persecuted. Even as we sit here in comfort and in ease, with freedom to study, we know that your children abroad in some places are are hiding. They're in want. They're in deprivation. Their families are scared. And they do not have access to the treasure that you have placed in our lap. Father, we uh, we have an embarrassment of riches. We ask you, Father, that you would strengthen us during this time of ease that we would be preparing. Whether that should come in our life or whether it's simply something that will happen after we're gone, Father, we... We dare not take the chance that we won't be ready for what you might bring. And even if it's not persecution, Father, your testing will come in many ways. But you test your servants to see them faithful, like you did Job. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us a heart for study, for a seriousness of purpose, and that we would seek you before we seek the world, so that we would be ready for the world. Thank you, Father, that you bring us this reminder. We pray that you'd strengthen those that we pray for around the world. Grant them mercy and grant them strength. Let us follow in their footsteps, as many before have done, so that your name would be glorified. And bring us back next week, if it be your will, Father, so we may hear the word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.